Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books in History. My name is Rick Northrup, and I am very pleased to be speaking with Professor Alexander Hill, who teaches military history at the University of Calgary in Canada. Professor Hill is an expert on the military and political history of Russia and the Soviet Union post-1917. Professor Hill is the author of many books, including articles on military and strategic history during the Second World War, and the former editor-in-chief of the Journal of Slavic Military Studies. His latest book is The War on the Eastern Front, the Soviet Union, 1941 to 1945, a photographic history, published in 2021 by Pen and Sword Books Limited. Welcome to the program, Professor. Yeah, thank you, Richard. Glad to have you here. So I was hoping we could discuss your book today and get to know you a little bit. You studied Russian history at Cambridge, Professor. When did you know military history specifically Russian military history, was for you? Um, I think like a lot of us, uh, it's something you sort of built up as over through teenage years, um, the interest, but it's not something that you can easily specialize in a university setting, in, in a university setting until you sort of get to the graduate level. Uh, even then, I mean, the topic of my PhD was was has a has a very heavy political component. It was about Soviet partisans, so there's a military side and a, a and a very uh, obvious political side to it too, which is just as well because you need both to get a, a university job. Off that's true. the 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 partisan movement for uh, new uh, listeners was forces behind the lines in the in the war on the Eastern Front. So often soldiers, but sometimes civilians as well. Am I correct? Yeah, no, that's right. The partisans were organized. They were Red Army, civilians, NKVDs. Um, a lot of organizations had a hand in, in that. Anyway, it was a very interesting uh, interesting topic for a thesis, and it turned out to be quite um, current in the sense that not short, shortly afterwards, obviously, the United States and the West got involved in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan, so counterinsurgency and insurgency became hot topics. So uh, in, in that sense, it was uh, it was timely because there are there are lessons from uh, the war on the east, the partisan movement on the eastern front that are relevant to to contemporary uh, anti-partisan and partisan warfare. So not to mention the war in Ukraine today. There's there's connections to be made with your studies and your work and things that are going on there. Um, the, the title of the book is, it says a photographic history. So it somewhat speaks for itself, but the book is a collection of images, sometimes really very startling images from each aspect of the war, including operations in Manchuria. Uh, can you take us through gathering the images for the book? You, you've used them in other research. What did you do differently this time? Well, this book came about because I, um, I'd been using images from what's known in the West as Sputnik. Uh, it's Ria, the Ria Novosti press agency in Russia. 
Um, I've been using their images for other books, starting with uh, the, uh, my uh, the Red Army and the Second World War, a book with Cambridge University Press, and you know I used some Sputnik images in a few books I've written for Osprey Publishing. And, you know, I suppose I was struck by how amazing their catalog is of photographs. And basically, I was looking for an excuse to use more of their photographs because, you know, publishers, you know, Osprey Books, it's what, 40 photos for one of their sort of 48 page books. They didn't uh, do, did not use a lot of photos. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, these were, they're not, they're not necessarily cheap if you buy them individually. But, you know, I was getting, uh, getting a fairly good relationship with the uh, London rep of, of Rhea Novosti or Sputnik. And I said to him, you know, this is a, th these are great photos. You know, how about we strike a deal uh, that you'll give me, you know, maybe more than 300 for a sort of flat rate uh, for a book that, you know, will be good for showcasing your images and, uh, you know, I'll enjoy writing it. So that was, that was how it uh how it came about. Right. And uh, Rio Novosti, they, did they change their name to Sputnik then? They're both publicly owned Soviet news agencies. Yeah, uh, yeah Rio Novosti is a Russian news agency. Um, it's a successor to a Soviet news agency. Sputnik is just a sort of branding that they use in the West. I don't know why they can't be Rio Novosti still. They used to be in the West, but now they're Sputnik. Maybe it has positive connotations. Perhaps, yeah, because I, I did notice that as in reading the book that there, the the name had changed from Real Novosti in your previous works to Sputnik, and I wasn't sure, trying to use the internet, whether they were different or not, but Russian news agencies cap or captured a lot of these images. When you had them in your hand, finally, they either emailed them or sent them to you. Some of the pictures have quite... Uh, detailed cut lines in one of the images you actually mentioned the pilot of a plane uh, i believe it was on page 236 and the identification was photo s5479038 if that helps you but it was if you have a copy i have my copy here in front of me and you mentioned the pilot's name in my mind i'm picturing pen and ink on the back of the of a photo that you and I would have seen as children, a hard copy paper. Is that how they came to you? I'm, I'm interested in the archival qualities here. No, they, uh, they, they're available online. And in fact, uh, you don't even need an account to browse their images. If you go to Sputnik and their, uh, their photo archive, you can, you can browse a lot of these images uh, yourself. They come with uh, captions. Some of them are good and de relatively detailed. Um, some of them are not particularly detailed. The English captions that they provide on their English language version of the website are often much shorter and not necessarily as accurate as the Russian captions on the Russian version of their website. Um, some of the, I mean, typically one thing the Soviets were good at is if there was a pilot or something like that in a photograph, they would often try and identify the pilot by name. I mean, usually they take a photo of a, particular pilot because they've done something worthwhile so they that's what that's they're, they're very hot on the names of generals pilots soldiers if particularly if they got um awards but uh, a lot of the captions weren't necessarily that detailed and it was for me to you know fill in the detail i mean i even noticed a few of them are incorrectly captioned just because when you've 
been living with these photos for a year or two, you start to, you know, get to know them quite well and, you know, pick out which ones are the captions are accurate and which ones less so. They become, you become connected with them in a sense. And we're just seeing them. Yeah. I noticed that there were some photos in your other works and then this one, and they were similar. So your relationship with them and would have, would have then developed over time. I'm, because you would yeah, pick I used, to, I used a few of the images um, again, just because they were so good. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, it was really great that the Rio Novosti agreed to give me, because like these the folk, access to these photos at a very reasonable cost. Uh, and then the other side of it is um, getting pen and sword to agree to it, because, you know, photographs, printing that many photographs in a book is, is expensive for a publisher. This is not a cheap book. And the fact that they are offering it for £25 GB P is, um, you know, it, it, they're cutting their margins on this one relatively. Uh, I, can, I could definitely say that, that uh, it, it was affordable and it, it kind of stands out in the crowd. The, the work that is stands out in the crowd in that each page has text and these cut lines are significant. They're not one line and they will go into some detail. Plus you've broken out the work into chapters beginning with Operation Barbarossa going all the way to the war in Manchuria. That in itself is hard to come by in, in uh, textual analysis of the war on the Eastern Front. Most tend to end after the fall of Berlin. Yeah, I mean, and, and I should add, it's also, it covers pre-war period. I think it's important to discuss the preparations for one of the Soviet Union. So there are a few chapters there covering some of the small wars uh, prior to the Great Patriotic War. So, you know, there's the, the, the fighting against the Japanese in 1938-39, war in Finland, Soviet involvement in the Spanish Civil War and those things, because they're all important in understanding the development of the Red Army prior to Barbarossa. Uh, but yeah, Manchuria, I mean, I, I wasn't able to include Manchuria in my the Red Army in the Second World War book just because the book got so thick. And Cambridge University Press said, no more. You can't have more than 250,000 words. I said, what about Manchuria? But no, I couldn't persuade them. But this time, uh, you know, I had the space to do Manchuria. I include a bit of Manchuria in my um, documentary reader. And yeah, there's very little written about the Soviet war in Manchuria. I mean, there are a few works, bits by David Glantz and a few other bits, but there's there's not a lot of material on it. So, and, uh, you know, Rio Novosti had a surprisingly good number of photos um, on that particular subtopic. So this particular work clocks into about 320 pages, not quite uh, as long as some of uh, the Red Army and Second World War, for instance. Uh, but it, uh, it, like it says, it just goes into quite a bit of def detail for a photographic history. What was getting the text and some access to some of the military records like? It's quite well known uh, for people who are interested in Russian military history that access to the archives is difficult. But for your for new listeners to the podcast, maybe you could explain to me back when you were doing research originally or perhaps for this book as well, what it was like getting access to the Russian military archives. So all of them, I know there are more than one. Yeah, well, you know, now, a lot of the sources are amazingly easily accessible, um, online even. 
I mean, in a way, um, Russia now is is ahead of the game uh, compared to the West in publishing World War II era military documents for a wide audience. When I started uh, as a graduate student, getting access to documents from the for the period 1941 to 1945, military documents, um, was very difficult. The partisans, one of the reasons for choosing the partisans as well was because partisans were, um, for my PhD, they were, they were an organization run by the Communist Party, and that was a different archive that was more accessible. Now, the military archive was this archive outside Moscow at a place called Padolsk. And, you know, it was really difficult to get access in the 90s. Uh, I was very um, stubborn uh, in the 90s. Uh, literally, I, I w- went to the, I was living in Russia and I went to the Ministry of Defense and I would bang on the door and say, hey, you know, I'm a poor graduate student from Britain and I'd really love to work in your archive and everything. I don't know if they just got bored of me pestering them, but uh, eventually they gave me access that I could use some of the army-related army materials on the partisan. And um, just there's a nice little anecdote story with this because, you know, I went to this archive and I, I wondered, oh, well, that's really great. They've let me in. And, and they, um, they, they assigned me two officers to look after me. I thought, well, why are they assigning me two officers here? I'm like, you know, I'm a graduate student here. Uh, anyway, it turned out after my two weeks in this archive that I've got, um, they said to me, well, uh, Alexander, are you going to do any photocopies? I said, well, you know, I'm not, I've not got a lot of cash. I'm a graduate student. Um, and, you know, I've been working in Russia. This was at the time of the financial crash in Russia. There was a financial crash in 98. And I'd been working as a translator. And uh, I hadn't been paid. I said, sorry, folks, I haven't got a lot of money. And they were like, utterly, their jaws dropped. And they took me to see the head of the archive. And they said, you know, this sort of muttering away to him. It was quite obvious that things hadn't panned out the way they thought they would because the, the head of the archive told me, he said, look, what we kind of expected that you'd spend a lot of money on photocopies here uh, because, you know, the last Germans who came, and these were obviously people with some massive grant, you know, they spent thousands of dollars on photographs and I'd, I'd spent $50 which is <laughs> um, on photocopies. Anyway, they, the, the head of the archive was a really nice guy and he said, well, you know what, Alexander, I tell you what, you come back when you've got a full professorship or whatever else, uh, and then you can spend some more money with us. <laughs> I, I think that the fact they let me into the archive was partly because they thought that, because this was up, these were hard times in Russia at that time. They thought I was going to spend thousands of dollars. Now, you know, even when you were in the archive at that time, they could only they would only give you stuff that was uh, declassified. And, you know, sometimes they give me files and anything that had secret typed on it, they wouldn't give me because it hadn't been declassified. If, 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 the, if it happened that the person who'd uh, been doing the copy of the document had forgotten to put secret on it, then I could see it. And it was that, 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 that simple. Now, if we move forward now to, you know, 2022, uh, 23, I can't remember when they set up this website, but they've got these two websites, um, Memory of the Pe- of uh, Victory, and one's called Pamyat Naroda, Memory of, of the People, uh, and the other one's called Podvik Naroda. 
the victory of the people. And uh, these websites are, are really aimed at Russian civilians who want to trace the histories of their relatives who served in the Great Patriotic War. But in order for them to do that, they have published a phenomenal number of documents on these websites. I mean, now if I want to do some serious research on a particular battle, I don't have to leave Canada. Um, you know, the, the, the website is, is, is remarkable. You can um, all sorts of interesting search functions by units, battles, um, things like that. And as I say, this is all geared to, this isn't to help Western historians write the history of the war. <laughs> it's to help uh, relatives find, uh, find out about their predecessors. But, you know, there's nothing like that for the British or the Americans. For what a boon to military history buffs, though. If you Are, are these archives mostly in Russian? or well, they have it's, all in, it's all in Russian. Yeah, right. all in Russian. Your language first. Yeah, so but it, it it's an amazing resource now. The for new listeners, the Great Patriotic War is how Russians and their allies refer to the war in the East. But it's also a subject for them which is of great importance. Um colloquially put it, they're kind of touchy about it. And that is, that is part of what is the um uh, motivation to the war in Ukraine. It's all very tied together. So to release this number of documents is quite significant. They're they're more open than they used to be, uh, but it's also of great importance to them. Uh, I'm surprised. I, I listened to podcasts with Anthony Beaver and his stories of doing research. He had minders watching over top of him. He wouldn't. They wouldn't let him leave with certain documents. They wouldn't let him see documents like you said. They were type secret. But uh, it was a little more tense from what I understood. Seems like your experience was a whole lot more open, and as long as you didn't look at the secret stuff, they're almost disappointed that you didn't do more while you were there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I mean, I think some of it has to do with the fact that uh, they probably felt that Anthony Beaver was looking for sensational stuff and the dirty laundry. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't think he speaks Russian, and obviously speaking Russian breaks down barriers. Um. You know, I know I knew how to present what I was doing in a positive light. Right. Yeah. Uh, important to the Russian people. They're very proud of their achievements, and so should they be for the scale and the epic battles on the Eastern Front. I mean, things were very different. The 90s were, I mean, I were very different than than uh, now. I mean, you know, I suppose I could have seen the officers who were looking after me as mind as if I chose to see them that way they were there to make sure i didn't re copy the wrong stuff but you know we built up a rapport and it was all very friendly i mean um it, they weren't necessarily as sensitive about a lot of the uh straight up military documents they tend to be more sen sensitive about um documents relating to repression and other topics like that rather than just straight up military documents if i'd said to them you know i'm looking at this particular battle which was an abject failure for the red army then their attitude would have been very different but i said you know i'm looking at the the great struggle of the soviet partisans in the german rear and that's a different ball game um 
But now this, the fact that they posted, put all of these online is, is quite um, amazing. But they haven't, you know, you can't get, in some ways they've become more secret about other documents since the 1990s. So, for example, there have been documents uh, in pre-war archives that I looked at in the 1990s and that I couldn't look at again now because they've been um, made secret again. Or reclassified. Reclassified. I think maybe Russian researchers have access to them, but, I mean, foreigners now. I mean, there were a lot of foreign uh, authors who went there looking for the, you know, as I say, the dirty laundry. And to be fair to the Russians, now even in the West, the West doesn't necessarily publish all its dirty laundry. The Russians, in some ways, in some archives, you had unprecedented access, which they've now, you know, closed some of those doors. Would, I know you don't do your research in the West, but would you say that it's easier then to look at some of the military history uh, on the Eastern Front than, say, to look at something like the firebombing of Hamburg or Dresden or... It's only easier just because they put it on the web. I mean, for example, I've done some research. I've, I've written about sort of British Lend-Lease aid to the Soviet Union and used British sources for that. So I've worked in the National Archives in the UK. And, you know, there's huge amounts of information there that's been declassified and is available. It's just not been published on, on the internet. So now, you know, British Archive, the National Archives, historians will tell you is one of the greatest archives to work in in the world. In that it's so efficient, they provide documents to you. Sometimes you order them and you get them within 40 minutes uh, on your desk. It's just an amazing place to work. So, you know, it, the issue isn't that a lot of the World War II material is classified in Britain, because a lot of it's not. But uh, the issue is that uh, it costs a lot of money to put it on online, and uh, the Russians think it's thought it was worthwhile doing that. What... Uh... What other advantages or disadvantages do photographic elements offer when you're when you're publishing? There must be like you've gone through quite a uh, a lot there in terms of price and getting access. When we read military history as amateur historians, I like a lot of the maps. I know from talking to other people, it's the pictures. I want to be able to see the tanks they're talking about. Are there disadvantages other than the cost that you can think of? Um, I mean, like any historical source, you, you, you have to be careful with photographs. I mean, I think, I think a lot of the wider public sees photographs as somehow more authentic, as a photograph of more authentic than other sources. Uh, and of course, you know, as I teach my students in our methodology course, that's not necessarily the case. You know, photographs can be staged quite easily. Uh, obviously, when the photographers take photographs, they make choices about what to take pictures of. So you can get a completely distorted view uh, of what's going on from photographic images. Now, the, the, the interesting thing about a lot of the photographs in this book is that they were photographs that were published. You know, some of them were published during the Cold War period, but a lot of them weren't available for publication until the 1990s onwards uh, because, you know, they didn't necessarily show things that were particularly pleasant. Um, you know, for example, you won't find pictures in Soviet-era books, understandably perhaps, of action scenes where people are actually being killed. And uh, the book does contain images such as this for, for people who go to look at the work. 
there are startling images there. There's pictures of dead horses. Uh, there are pictures in battle, and they're live. There are other pictures that seem to me to be more staged. And yeah. like I mentioned before, there are definitely lots of pictures of Russian heroes, which Sputnik would have an interest in publishing. Not just the Vasily Zaitsev that most people may have or heard about in, uh, I believe it was Enemy at the Gates. Uh, yeah. But there's Russian, uh, other Russian snipers uh, pictured there and then war heroes. And when you look at the photos, you can get a sense, and I'm not sure if I'm accurate with this, get a sense that they're promoting a an image of the war that they do want people to see. What they may not always picture is the brutality of the war in or the battle in Moscow, uh, the the battle of Kursk and Stalingrad, and just the they call it the the Ratten Creek, I believe the Germans call it, just because it, they call it, it's the War of the Rats. Right? Yeah, down to that level. Yeah, I mean, now it's important to remember that you know, obviously the fo the 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 war the war photo photographers were there as you know journalists with the camera and they they didn't know when they were taking the pictures for example whether the place they were at the battle they were photographing how that would be viewed in the future for example so you know if it's now of course if it's Stalingrad it's a great victory but at the time journalists might have been taking a picture somewhere during the long there was a long battle uh near fighting the Eugène in 1942 and into 43 and those you know that fighting you know it's not a great success story for the red army but the journalists taking the pictures at the time didn't know that take the pictures they get put in the archives they didn't necessarily get used in books during the soviet period because rojev wasn't a success but they didn't bin them and you know they're available now to provide some sort of record of something that wasn't uh heavily publicized uh in the soviet period I mean, they, they, you know, they kept all of these photographs. They just weren't necessarily used. Is there a part of the war on the Eastern Front that you would want to have North American readers, uh, uh, I, I hate to use the word fans, but people of uh, interest in military history, amateur or semi-professional, is there something they need to know? Is there something that they're not aware of? Um, I think it's very difficult in the West to get across you know, the scale of suffering and destruction on the Eastern Front. I mean, photographs, I think, definitely help do that. You know, when we say, we talk about, you know, somewhere around maybe 27 million people killed in the Soviet Union or dying of war-related deaths, you know, it's very difficult to picture 27 million deaths. It's hard to understand that, to put that into focus, Canada has something around 37 million people. That's right. You know, it's a big chunk. It's a big chunk of Canada's population. It's very yeah. difficult to picture that. And, uh, you know, maybe an older generation, First World War generation in Canada, which of course has largely died off, may start, may have had some feeling of, you know, what it was like to, to know at least one family member in an extended family killed or seriously wounded by the war. So maybe not in Canada, but in Britain. But of course, people who are alive today in the West uh, haven't had that sort of experience. Mm -hmm. they up knowing, you know, I mean, in, in, in the Soviet Union after the war, everybody knew somebody who'd been killed or would. It's unavoidable with that number of casualties. They would have had a much more personal connection with the war than their friends, their families. Almost every single person would have known 
someone personally connected to the war, if not themselves. And and similarly, you know, most of the population of uh, the Soviet Union lived in the European part, and a lot of that was uh, occupied. They were fought over, you know, just the sheer destruction, you know, houses destroyed, flats, farms, all of that, even if... even if your family had got off lightly uh, in terms of death and uh, injury, the chances are, you know, that the town, you know, many towns were destroyed completely, villages destroyed. Just that aspect of it as well. You know, it's, had, it's a huge impact uh, on the lives of people uh, who, who, who were living in the post-war Soviet, um, Soviet society. Right. Was there something else you hope to accomplish with the book? There is there something that you wanted to get across to readers? This is it's not another book on D-Day. It's not another book on uh, a famous battle in the West that uh, you know most people would have seen Tom Hanks in a in a movie in, and they're well. Yeah, I mean, this is different. Yeah, I wanted. I want. I mean, I want. Obviously, there. A lot of books, particularly when you've only got a few photographs uh, to put in the middle of a book, they, they the photographs tend to be action shots, battles. I wanted to add, uh, you know, a bit more breadth into it. I wanted to show something of the lives of the soldiers in this book. So, you know, I there are, for example, the photographs of uh, a guy taking food to the front line. You know, I don't. It's not a picture that I see in many books. A guy carrying uh, hot food on his back. Yes, it's during the Battle of Stalingrad, but it's not a picture that's widely used. Um, there's also a chapter on the war behind the front line, you know, civilians, industry, things like that. There's a chapter on, on well, one of those chapters includes sort of prosaic things like soldiers digging trenches, soldiers eating their supper, um, those sorts of things that usually books don't don't show. There, there were photos, and there are photos in the book of normal civilians digging trenches. Uh, picture uh, a photo, black and white, your typical Russian mother with a scarf over her head and that somewhat heavy coat on with a shovel digging a six-foot trench. The photo professor mentioned of the soldier or perhaps the uh conscripted civilian carrying hot food to yeah it's a, yeah. a soldier it looked like it was in the battle of stella guy because it was rubble it was an urban battle he had what we would almost look, uh, look at as a backpack but with uh rounded and molded some sort of structure inside of it and he's carrying food over rubble to soldiers who are also in a camped out in rubble buildings, no food around, winter conditions, snow. And these day-to-day types of things are throughout the book, which I really like. Uh, It does do that for your average reader, and it takes them away from pictures of tanks, pictures of... Now, there are, of course, pictures of tanks in there. You've got to cater for a wide audience. You know, I've tried to cover, you know, all all the military equipment aspects that one would cover aircraft there's i suppose you know the navy chapter is relatively unusual the soviet navy doesn't get a lot of um time in western books because it's largely a war on land but you know the navy does uh has a role to play um the soviet air force gets its own chapter 
Um, there's a chapter on uh, lend lease assistant, you know, uh, foreign equipment being used by the Red Army. Uh, it's something I've done research on. So it does cover all of those things that uh, would be of interest to the sort of, I don't know how to say it really, the military history buff who, who likes, their, is, likes their tanks and stuff. But, uh, you know, I wanted it to be a book that, that wouldn't just be for that audience, but that a wider audience would appreciate. I mean, some of this comes from teaching, really. I, I teach a, a final year seminar on the Great Patriotic War, and I get a range of students. And those students have changed a little bit over time. Uh, when I first started teaching this course, it was inevitably boy guys, <laughs> oh, almost exclusively. They love their tanks and whatever else. And for some reason now, I get a more, more diverse audience in that class. And I'm aware that uh, not everybody's interested in just tanks and stuff. Uh, and I, I, you know, it, I, it's just. I was writing a book that would be of interest to a full range of sort of students who uh, attend my classes. So, for example, one of the chapters is on the Siege of Leningrad, which is a topic that's often of interest to students who aren't into the the, the, the tanks and things. Obviously, it's a horrible story of human suffering, uh, you know, with nearly around a million people dying of uh, war-related deaths in Leningrad during the siege. Uh, and that chapter includes some military material, but also, you know, gives you some idea of the lot of civilians in Leningrad uh, during the war. The uh, battle uh, or siege of Leningrad, more properly referred to, was it three or four years in length? The Germans had almost surrounded the city of Leningrad uh, with a minor or with a small road over Lake Ladoga, which is northeast of Leningrad, which freezes in winter, but obviously you still got to get food across in the three or four years when the water is not frozen. And the city never gave in. They never capitulated, despite the fact that the Germans were there for almost the uh, duration of the war in the Eastern Front once they got to the point in, uh, uh, during Operation Barbarossa, which was the initial part of the war in the Eastern Front lasted how long was that operation, Professor? Six, eight months? Well, it depends how you define the end. But if you take the end as the start of Operation Typhoon, then it would be up until sort of the 2nd of October. By that point, of course, Leningrad had already been um, effectively cut off from the rest of Soviet territory. And that was the case in early September. And depending on how you define the siege... I mean, they do manage to, the Soviets do manage to punch through a land corridor in January 1943, but it's fairly narrow and it's under artillery fire. But the siege is usually not deemed as being fully lifted until January 1944. That land corridor. Sorry, go ahead. And, and, and uh, yeah, just, you know, some of your listeners may, may be aware that, you know, rations for civilians. Uh, got down, bread rations got down as low as 125 grams a day uh, during that during the winter of 1941-42. That's, uh, you know, go away and, if you're listening to this, go away and measure out, weigh 125 grams of bread. It's not a lot. A couple pieces of bread, tops. Yeah. Yep. And that land road or that land bridge would have been a, a corduroy road too, would it not, through... Um... I'm I'm not sure really. It depends on the season of uh, place. Not yeah. That's a good question. There are pictures of corduroy roads in the book. 
That's right. Yep. Uh, not this. Not not necessarily there. I, I think they probably have got away without a corduroy road on that piece of land, but a lot of that part of Russia, uh, marshy and uh, not easily passable, and both sides had to build corduroy roads, which is a bit of a novelty. It's not something you see in pictures very often, where they're literally cutting down trees and making a road out of uh, trees laid horizontally. For myself, a, a military history reader, that was the first time I had seen a picture of a corduroy road. I could only Im imagine in my head, and this book really brought it to life, what a corduroy road looks like. It's just a yeah, series no, of quite. But, and you drive tanks over the, well, trucks, tanks would crush the logs. And so you un then again understand the hardships. They have to mow down half a forest and lay out these roads only to have them bombed by artillery later and rebuild them again. Uh, some of the uh, scale of the war on the Eastern Front is what people need to talk about or understand if you're a live in North America, as you mentioned. What we also, if you get into reading about the war on the Eastern Front, sort of are, are faced with right away is that there were three major battles and Battle of Moscow, Battle of Stalingrad, and the Battle of Kursk. Were there other things or are there other aspects of the war that perhaps a, um, someone who wants to get into reading about this really significant aspect of the war should know about? Besides those major turning points, if you will. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot of discussion about the turning points. Um, I suppose there's not necessarily enough attention paid to the battles that come after the turning points when it looks as if the Red Army is clearly going to, looks like they're going to win. Uh, you know, things, battles like camp operations like Operation Bagration in 1944, um, Battles in which the Red Army is fighting much more effectively than they were. The Battle of Moscow, Stalingrad, of course. You know, they've really honed how to conduct major operations. I mean, Operation Bagration is, is significant in that it leads to the destruction, basically leads to the destruction of Army Group Center. The whole Army Group uh, really ceases to exist as a functioning entity. Uh, after Bagration in the summer of 1944, and that with a huge leap, uh, the Red Army in in in, in central Russia uh, gets all the way to Poland. So you know that's a that's a big operation. I, I, it always concerns me a bit as a as a military historian how we tend to focus on the big battles, and we don't really see how there's stuff going on everywhere else as well across the whole front line. You know, we focus on the big battle, but even if you're on a quiet sector of the front, the war's still going on. There's going to be sporadic shelling, raids, reconnaissance. People are getting killed. You know, there may be, you may be launched against the enemy in some sort of diversionary thing in order to provide a diversion for a major offensive. And, and the people fighting on those sectors of the front uh, are often sort of forgotten now, and and that's one thing I think you know the the Soviet side was Soviet Union was careful to try and uh, avoid getting about people during the Soviet period. They sort of did because they didn't want to talk about battles that weren't very successful. But in the post-Soviet period in Russia, they they now talk about battles that weren't really talked about before, 
and I, I do try and include, you know, a feeling of some of that other stuff that's going on in the book. So the, the fighting uh, against Army Group Center in 42 and into 1943 is a good example that there's no major breakthrough. The Soviets try numerous times to break through, don't succeed. Hundreds of thousands killed on both sides. Uh, and it was not really something that was written about for a long time. Uh, now, now it is in to some extent in Russia and books are starting to appear in English. But uh, as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, uh, there aren't really that many people writing, particularly using the Soviet sources uh, about the war on the Eastern Front. And there's a limit to, you know, what the handful of us who are using Russian sources can write about. Um, David Blance does his best to cover all these battles. He had a sort of um, period where he was sort of writing about forgotten battles. That was his thing, and he's done a good job on that. But, uh, you know, he's he's only got so far through the war. The uh, fact that you're a Calgarian, and I happen to live in Calgary myself, is, or I'll call you a Calgarian, even though you live in Okotoks. Uh, for American listeners, uh, we live in what is the northwest part of North America in Canada. And uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have someone close by who is, recognized as expert in the field but as you mentioned it's a relatively narrow field your book would then be a good place to start i think because it has some accessible qualities to it in that it has the images <clears throat> david glance as you mentioned earlier is uh, also well known in the field his books tend to be a thousand pages each and it's they're operational histories for new new readers who want to learn about the soviet union and the war on the Eastern Front, because they may have not known anything about it. It's a good introduction that way. Yeah, that's, I mean, I definitely wrote it for that reason. You know, as having written the, I wrote this book with the Red Army in the Second World War. It's pretty dense. It's for people who are fairly interested and have already read quite a lot about the Red Army and the war. And uh, this, yeah, this book is definitely, whilst there are lots of pictures and, uh, and text in there for, for those who already know a lot, the idea was that somebody who was relatively new to the topic uh, would would get a reasonable understanding of, of, of the a sort of broad brush understanding of the war. I mean, in fact, I'm, I, up until recently, I've used uh, my documentary reader in my senior undergraduate class. But next year, I'm also going to, you know, just appreciating, you know, how students, how valuable photographs are. I'm going to also use this book as part of that class. And some of those students will come in as military history buffs. Some of them will come in knowing next to nothing about the war. Uh, and my hope is that that will help them quite quickly gain, you know, in a picture, literally, of what's going on. What are you working on now? What uh, books would you have upcoming in the future, Professor? Um, I'm actually working on, at the moment on a book called, for um, an academic publisher, Routledge, um, it's called a um, uh, handbook on Russian and Soviet military studies. I mean, in some senses, that comes out of the war in Ukraine, why the publisher asked me to write it. It's not just me writing it. I have a large proportion of those who write on the Eastern Front and Soviet military affairs in general writing for this book. There are 30 authors plus me. Uh, it does cover, it goes all the way really from the late 19th uh, early 19th century uh, through to the present. 
There's obviously a substantial section on the Great Patriotic War, given its importance. Um, but it goes all the way up to the war in Ukraine. I mean, to some extent, the war in Ukraine has sort of distracted me a little bit from other things. Uh, you know, I've been asked to comment on it. And, you know, historians are often able to comment on these things because they have, you know, a sort of deep appreciation of culture, including military culture that continues to inform things in the present. Um, so, yeah, this book is, is is due out sometime late 2024, early 25. Um, some of the stuff I'm writing in that is is sort of later Cold War stuff. I'm branching. I'm, I'm not forgetting World War II, the Great Patriotic War. Um, but I, I, I've also got quite interested in the late Cold War period. And if, if there's very little written on, you know, relatively speaking, there's, the, the, there are not a huge number of people working on the Soviet Union in the Second World War using Russian sources. But there are even fewer looking at topics outside the Great Patriotic War. Um, you know, I'm one of hardly anybody in the West uh, looking at um, one topic I'm looking at is the Soviet Armed Forces and support for what we call national liberation movements uh, that other countries either trying to achieve independence or... Um, for example, groups like the ANC fighting apartheid in South Africa. Soviet military assistance to those groups is something I'm working on at the moment, and eventually there'll be a book uh, specifically about that. Now, I suppose a lot of your readers uh, say, hey, you know, this guy's he's supposed to be writing about the Great Patriotic War still, because they're, you know, the listeners are interested in that. I do plan to, to, to do another major book on that at some point, as long as I, you know, alive and healthy. Uh, when I, when I get round to it, I'm slowly, I am amassing material for a book which will be a sort of very dated, not quite day-to-day, but a very detailed look at the war on the Leningrad axis in the Great Patriotic War. So uh, the fighting for the Germans, this army group north, um, the advance on Leningrad, the fighting in that region, which goes all the way through to the summer of 1944. I'd written my PhD on partisans in that region. Um, obviously, it incorporates the siege of Leningrad. But what I wanted to do was to, to I mentioned earlier with the photographs book, wanting to, to sort of give a picture of what's happening, not just where the, the famous battles are taking place, but where the day-to-day war was carrying on for months and months and months. Uh, and that's something I want to show in this this sort of very more granular granular analysis of the war on the sort of Leningrad axis. Yes, there'll be the big battles, the liberation of Leningrad, the ending of the siege, but there'll also be, you know, a lot of smaller and sometimes bloody battles that just don't make it into Western books. There's some pretty heavy fighting in the region that just doesn't fit in with the sort of narrative of the big offensive operation so that's something that uh, i hope to do in the next decade or so hopefully some of the lesser known aspects of the war that uh, don't make 1000 book tomes uh on the war in the eastern front they're not famous battles or anything of that sort of level but also important to the war in the eastern front that i look yeah, forward to the book We've got, you know, we've got plenty of books about Stalingrad now, Kursk, Battle of Bosco, less so about 
late 44, early 45. We could do with a bit more work on, on some of the late war Soviet offensives, but there are definitely lots of, uh, lots of gaps, even in 41 to 43 about to fill on what's going on on the, on the, uh, on the, on the rest of the Eastern front. One of the aspects of uh, your research on the Eastern front, and there's still lots of work to be done, lots of areas left to be explored. Yeah, certainly. So if, uh, you know, if uh, there are any students listening to this and, you know, you're going to have to learn Russian if you want to do this seriously, but uh, it's not as, it's not as terrible a language to learn as people think it is. It's got um, a lot of things you have to learn up front, but once you've learned those, it's a very structured language. It's it's uh, it's not as bad as some, and uh, you know, we we do take graduate students to do military history, uh, and they're definitely uh, they're definitely there's more interest in in Russia obviously now with the war in Ukraine, particularly the Russian military. I'm hoping that there'll there'll, there'll be a few more graduate students coming out of the universities who who do Russian military affairs because of that. Sadly, of course, uh, I don't want to be too political in the podcast, but, you know, readers, uh, listeners in, in, in Calgary, having a university with a strong group of military historians might not appreciate that there are very few civilian universities anywhere in the West uh, with a strong group of military historians. It's not politically, it's not a favoured area of research in university departments anymore. Uh, you'll find strong concentrations of military historians uh, in military institutions, but very, you know, very few in 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 the civilian sector. And I'm afraid that's unlikely to change dramatically, given the sort of politics uh, surrounding university departments. But uh, you know, we're fighting a a battle, if I can use that word, to to sort of keep military history alive in civilian universities. That's true. You don't see uh, department orientation towards military history very often. No, very rarely. Well, thank you for your time, Professor. I think we'll end it there. If there's nothing else that uh, we wanted to add, I think we've covered the, the book in some detail. It's available through Pen and Sword Publishers. They also have a catalog online, penandsword.co.uk, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, they have a North American distributor, Casemate, uh, distributes in North America, but it's also available through Amazon and places like that as well. So, sure. so yeah, thanks for, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for your time.